This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 23, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The Senate's failed effort to amend the Constitution would have given Congress the power to regulate most political speech directly, and it was perhaps doomed to fail. But Alan Dickerson with the Center for Competitive Politics argues that the badly drafted amendment represents a breathtaking, frightening attempt at controlling public discourse. To the extent what you're trying to do is legislatively overturn Citizens United, you would have to write a very narrow amendment. That's not what this does. Um, What the amendment would have done, and again, it's it's difficult to to consider it a serious effort, given that it was was never going to garner the votes required to be sent out to the states for ratification. But the language of the actual amendment says that Congress shall be entitled to make reasonable limits on the raising and spending of money to influence elections. I think there's, there's two points there. One is that when you say to influence elections, that's not the Citizens United standard. That's going back to Buckley. That's 1976 when liberal justices like you know Brennan and, and Thurgood Marshall said that kind of language is so inherently broad and vague as to itself serves a First Amendment violation. So Buckley, if I understand correctly, uh, created this distinction between uh, a campaign expenditure and an ex- independent expenditure? It did. I mean, Buckley, Buckley said something which should be non-controversial in serious circles, which is that while, while money itself isn't speech, the spending of money is necessary in what they called mass society to get your message across. And that, that was a near unanimous holding of the Supreme Court two years after Watergate. And, and what the court did, having, having reached that fairly apparent um, point, was to say that, now we're going to distinguish between money that you're giving directly to candidates and money that you're spending yourself to try to put out a message, to try to talk about who should and should not hold office. And what was that rationale? The rationale was partially, an, I think, a judicial attempt to salvage a very poorly drafted statute. But the, the central rationale was that to the extent that what Congress is trying to do is prevent the corruption of office holders. Well, you need to have some connection between the money and the office holder. And to the extent that you're giving it to a candidate, well, that's closer than if you're just going out there and spending it. And, that, and so we live in that world now. Yes, we do. Uh, w- with respect to this clear delineation of money you give to a candidate, which could be corrupting. It isn't as a legal matter. And money that you spend independently, which is not corrupting because you never give it to the candidate. It's That's at, correct. It's at, best, it's at best less corrupting than contributions. So when this statute says uh, reasonable limits on the spending of money to influence elections, that encompasses all of it. It encompasses all of it. Um, and it's just it's breathtakingly broad. I mean, lowering unemployment influences elections. When you, when you talk about influencing the election, influencing the outcome of a vote uh, that, that isn't necessarily where, where people vote on idiosyncratic values, uh, it, it's very difficult to see what precisely the, the end point of that analysis and that regulatory power would be. Newspapers? Well, that's actually the, the other great part. Of course, you know, some, some of us have referred to this as an attempt to repeal the First Amendment. I think that is an intellectually fair position. Um, others have said, no, no, this is an, this is an attempt just to, to target uh, a particular, in their view, problem in the law. But you get to the end of the amendment and it says, everything we've just said doesn't apply to the press. Well, that suggests a few interesting things. One is, 
you seem to be conceding it applies to the freedom of speech if you feel that you have to carve out the freedom of the press since they're both in the First Amendment, uh, which which I think gives us some some reason to doubt your protestations that you're not attempting to change that language. Um, it's also you'll notice there's nothing in there about religion. There's nothing in there that defines the press. Uh, there's 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 something of of a tension in the law between when you say the press. I mean, if I go out there and I, I take out an ad in a newspaper that's being put through the press, is that covered by the freedom of press or the freedom of speech? Um, and it, again, I, I think that if you were to go to some of the co-sponsors of the amendment, they would have said, "No, we mean the institutional media," which has its own constitutional difficulties. But at bottom, given that carve out, it's difficult to take it seriously, honestly. And the really, the really fundamentally frightening thing is that 54 United States senators thought that this was appropriately drafted. Do you sense, and this is a purely political question, that they voted for it knowing it wasn't going anywhere and therefore didn't have to take it that seriously? I would be shocked if that were not the case. Okay. All right. There have been other amendments filed by members of Congress to amend the Constitution that did not carve out uh, the press. There have. Perhaps you're thinking of the, uh, the, the trend, which, which I certainly remember, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, of trying to ban flag burning, uh, which was, again, a situation where the Supreme Court did something that was not immediately popular. And actually, our, my organization, the Center for Competitive Politics, has actually put up a paper comparing various sitting Democratic senators who voted for this amendment and their previous statements about how heinous it would be to amend the First Amendment in the much narrower context of flag burning, uh, where you don't have these concerns about anything that might influence an election. By the way, burning a flag might influence an election, so it's never been entirely clear to me how that's a consistent, even on its own terms. Well, I mean, in, even if uh, if the issue is reasonable limits, which is vague, mm-hmm. uh, on spending of money, which encompasses everything we all do. That's correct. A lot of the... Uh, well, anything with any economic value. Right. To influence elections, which could be something you say over Thanksgiving dinner, that is a huge category. It is. Um, and... It goes to the heart of this debate, which is that you know, railing that that money isn't speech doesn't actually move the ball because it doesn't take much more than a, a momentary reflection to realize that that's not a helpful judiciable standard. What strikes me as as funny about this is there's so much passion uh, on behalf of reigning in uh, quote unquote a lot of air quotes here reigning in money in politics, dark money, et cetera, et cetera. And to then carve out uh, the press once again puts the government in this weird position of having to define it. That's exactly right, and you know it's 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 actually deeply ironic in the sense that the press clause has been understood uh, to be about these sort of licensing regimes, about the fact that under the under the crown, back when we fought a revolution over this sort of thing, um, you know you you had to have a license in order to speak. You had to be licensed press, uh, and. I mean, there is actually uh, Judge David Sintel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit at, at last year's lecture at Cato's Constitution Day made a, made a very interesting point about how, you know, no, actually the press has been consistently understood to be anything. When they speak of the press and the Constitution, they mean the actual physical machine that does the printing. I mean, what do you do about the modern equivalent about that? What do you do about bloggers? What do you do about these sort of other groups? Um, we actually had a, a, a case about this, which the Supreme Court chose not to review, but it was it was called Corsi versus the Ohio Elections Commission, and that case was was basically about this. It's sort of you know what do you do if you have a blogger 
who talks about politics? Is he the press? Is he a political committee? You know, what? How do you draw these lines? Um, and and some of us think the better part of wisdom might just be to admit that the press includes most publishing. Buckley came about uh, two years after Watergate, when the presidency was very unpopular and politicians were very unpopular. And this decision essentially uh, ensconced clear ideas about what's corrupting, what's not corrupting, and what could be corrupting, and what clearly isn't corrupting. And this was unpopular? I think it was unpopular in a sense. I mean, Buckley is a, a bit of a split baby opinion. And there are a lot of people on both sides who are unhappy with it one way or another. I think it's it's aged comparatively well, given the uh, the chaos of the last 10 years in this area of the law. But no, you, you, you do have, you, you have these fundamental themes, you know, when you have to regulate with narrow specificity, you have to target not just corruption in this sort of amorphous, generalized, what is good with a capital G manner, no, you have to go after quid pro quo arrangements. You have to have a limiting principle uh, that, you know, given that you have to have that limiting principle, we're going to treat different types of spending on speech differently. And above it all, the one thing that really there wasn't a lot of dispute on the court about was that you have to be talking about vote for this person or vote against this person. It can't be an attempt to amorphously influence an election because in a democratic society, that's going to be everything. You can't talk about climate change or gun rights or abortion or any other serious political issue in this country without it having some sort of political effect. Um, and that, that, old, that old desire to draw a bright line and say, if you're trying to elect a candidate, we can talk. But if you're not, that's simply beyond the government's purview. That was, that was doctrine uh, of the left until until relatively recently. And I, I, I can't explain that. There are, there are still certainly, I mean, the ACLU and other very brave individuals uh, still fighting that fight. But it's, it, it's sad to see 54 members of the Senate, many of whom have law degrees from reputable institutions, uh, voting for something like this. Alan Dickerson is legal director at the Center for Competitive Politics. You can read more about the struggle for free and open political debate at our website, cato.org. 